Well, welcome. We're so glad that all of you are here today. And uh, we're going to continue our study in 1 Samuel. And Mark has done a great job. If you guys remember last week, Mark did such a good job in recapping this transition point in the middle of 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 16, where David is anointed as the future king of Israel. And um, he's getting ready to, to take up that mantle sometime in the future during God's time. And Saul, the spirit of God is taken away from him. And an evil, an injurious, an evil spirit has, has taken over him. Um, and he has um, David come in to play the harp so that this injurious spirit uh, kind of departs during that time. And it's an amazing thing what you're seeing because what we're looking at in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is really about the first king of Israel from the asking of the king at the beginning uh, to the end of 1 Samuel, where it ends with Saul's death. We're really kind of following the life, the upward and the downward spiral of the first king. And as Mark has mentioned, uh, the Samuel, excuse, Samuel anointed Saul as being king because this was the type of king the people had asked for. If we go back to them saying, we want a, we want a king after all of the other nations, that's the, the type of king that Saul actually was. Whereas David was anointed king as being a man after God's own heart. And so we see a, a differentiation between these two uh, here in the book. But the, the turn uh, throughout uh, chapters 16 through 20, what we read last week, uh, we have the anointing of David and we have him being put into the service of Saul. So this injurious spirit uh, goes away. And it's, it should be noted, you know, have you ever noticed that when you're around a believer in Christ, even a believer in Christ who has a piece of Christ in them, can bring peace to people who are normally not peaceful? So that's what we see with David happening with Saul. And so I want to just kind of inject that, that idea for you to realize that you have a presence as a believer in Christ where you can, can make things better even for non-believers just by your presence. Um, but as we go on from there, we have David and Goliath, and we see that David uh, defeats Goliath, is given a place in, in Saul's army, and he gains more and more renown as he has more and more victories because God is with him. And yet, uh, David also strikes up a friendship with Jonathan, uh, Saul's son. And their friendship is a very strong friendship. That's even one, I think, that is above what Jonathan has with his father. He loves his father, but he knows that David is, is somebody special and, and cares very much about the Lord, and he wants to do the Lord's will. So what we have here is Saul uh, is jealous, becomes very jealous of David. And what he starts doing is he starts trying to defend his kingship from those who would usurp him. Because he's already been told by Samuel that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him and taken away from his family and given to another. He's told this in 1 Samuel 13. He's told this in 1 Samuel 15 when he falls short of God's commands of doing those things. Um, and so he's on the lookout and trying to preserve now his throne for all eternity. And so... He tries to kill David twice when he sees that, that he's becoming very popular with the people. And that there, there's a song that goes out that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. What more can he gain but the kingdom? So he tries twice to kill him. 
And David, fearing for his life, uh, runs away. And Jonathan, uh, being good friend to David, says that he will find out if the intention of his father is truly to harm him by letting him know that, that David has gone away to sacrifice with his family. And so he tells him that, that, uh, that story to his father. And his father says, I, I, how have you sided with David? I'm going to kill him. And so uh, Jonathan comes and tells David through code, that it's time for him to leave because his father does plan him harm. And that's what ends up happening through 1 Samuel 16 through 20. And so 21 represents a change of things that are happening. David is now on the run. And we're going to read a good portion of of some of these chapters because the actions of Saul are shocking in in these chapters. What happens as a result of things, as he tries to defend his crown from the God who established his crown to the God who's going to take away this crown, he's trying to claim to hold on to this crown for as as long as he can. And through this, we see some very shocking actions. But we see more than that, some shocking statements that happen in the midst of that. And we're going to take a look at that through 1 Samuel uh, 21 through 25 as we look at some of these passages. If you will, look at the beginning of this, 21 and the first 9 or 10 verses where it says this. uh, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. And David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us. As usual, whenever I set out, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I, I, I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. And the priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no other sword here but that one. David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. And that day David fled from Saul, and went to Achish, king of Gath. And we see from there that David is running from Saul and not wanting anything to happen. But word does get to um, King Saul concerning David and what had happened with the priests there at Nob. And so we're going to pick this up to see uh, to see King Saul reaction here in chapter 22, starting in verse 6. It says, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the teramask tree at the hill at Gibeah, with all of his officials standing around him. And Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? 
Is that why you have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And the king sent for the priest, Ahimelech, son of Ahiatab, and his father's whole family, who were priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahiatab. Yes, my lord, he answered. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword, and inquiring God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God of him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. And that day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But Abathar, son of Ahimelech, son of Ahiatab, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. Man, how far the mighty have fallen. We look at Saul and we look at his actions because of his paranoia that somehow the kingship is going to be ripped from him. And he sees David as a direct threat to that. Though David has not raised up his hand against them. And so he goes to Abath, uh, he goes to, uh, uh, he goes to the, to the high priest, to uh, Ahimelech, the priest who was there at Nob. And goes to his family. And Ahimelech helps him. And he helps him unknowingly. Absolutely doesn't know what's going on. Because David doesn't tell him everything. He says he's, a, he's on a mission from the king. And it's really urgent that he goes away. That he's left. And I, I suppose like if you're really into Star Wars like I've been. From a certain point of view that's the truth. Right? From a certain point of view he was on a mission for the king. He's trying to get away from the king. As quickly as possible. So he's left and he doesn't have a sword. And so he's given bread and he's given sword and he inquires of the Lord for him. And Saul hearing this doesn't believe him. As a matter of fact, Ahimelech says, look, I've done this before. I mean, who is as faithful as your royal bodyguard, David? He's done so much for you. Why in the world would I not do this? Why would I assume that any of this is ill-intended? 
But Saul's paranoia makes it so that not only does he not believe him, he believes that he's aided and abetted him by helping him to get away. And the punishment ought to be death. Not only is the punishment death, he orders his soldiers to kill the high priests and all the high priests and all the priests who were there of his family, all 85 members. Now, while the soldiers were not willing to do that, they would not do that. They didn't stop Doeg, the Edomite, from doing so. It's a really interesting thing. They were convicted themselves that they should not kill the high priest. But they weren't so convicted to stand against their king that the high priest should not die. So so all these priests die, 85 of them. One gets away and comes and meets up with David. But think about how far Saul has fallen. There's an interesting thing that happens in, in the place of this. If you'll remember back in chapter 15... Part of the reason when uh, the Amalekites were supposed to be attacked by Saul himself, by, by King Saul himself, and he was supposed to wipe out everybody, all the men, all the women, all the children, all the cattle, all the donkeys, everything. He decided not to do that. As a matter of fact, he held out the king as ransom. So he had Agag the king as ransom. And on top of that, he kept all of the best sheep. And when Samuel comes, the pro- when Samuel comes in and confronts him about it, he says, no, we were going to dedicate all these things to the Lord. And I put that in air quotes on perfect purpose because we're not sure the intention of the heart of Saul. King Saul might have done that, or maybe he's just saying that because he was caught. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But Samuel condemns it and says, no, because you did not fully do that. You know, this is, this is not a good thing. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. And then he talks about rebellion being like the sin of divination. So he equates this, this terrible sin of King Saul as not following through with what exactly God had said to do. So it's ironic here. He goes now to a town of priests that are within his own country because he sees David as an enemy. And he does to this town what he did not do to the Amalekites. The Amalekites, he didn't wipe them out completely. He kept the best of things for themselves and saved the king as to be a prisoner at war. But here, now that he sees David as his enemy, and his mind is so twisted to keep his kingship for himself, he wipes out the entirety of the priesthood of Nob, and then wipes out all of their inhabitants, all of the men, all of the women, all of the children, all of the cattle, all of the donkeys, all of the sheep. The same language that we see there before, he wasn't willing to do to an enemy of the people of Israel, he did to his own people. In Israel. Wow. And what's even more confusing about all of this action is something that happens right after this. In chapter 23, at the beginning of this, David goes off and saves uh, a town of Keliah. And Keliah was surrounded. And once he saves this town, he inquires of God to find out if the people of Keliah will hand him over to King Saul if Saul were to show up. And and it's told he would. So he leaves that area. After he leaves that area, Saul finds out about him being at Keliah. And so verse 7 of chapter 23 is very interesting. 
to hear what Saul says. He says, Saul was told that David had gone to Kaliah and he said, God has handed him over to me for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Now, how interesting to hear both David and Saul believe that God is helping them on their respective missions. How confusing that is for the people who are serving under King Saul because here he is giving credit to God for pinning down for pinning down David at a place of Keliah so that he might have his retribution on him because he sees him as an enemy and he's giving God the credit for tracking him down and pinning him in that place. How confusing it is for the people to hear two different people saying that they're serving God, but doing two very different things. It seems odd, doesn't it? But it's not so different than today. You know, there have always been those who have tried to bear the name Christian, but have failed. And those who fail usually fall in one of two categories, or one of two ways they fail. The first way is this. They fail to recognize the nature of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done for us. They either don't recognize Him as God, or they don't recognize Him as a God, or they recognize Him as a God that's lesser than that of the Father. Their religion is often works-based, as good behavior is a ticket to getting into heaven instead of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They do not miss out on deeds, but rather the person of Jesus who can save them. These would be like your Jehovah's Witnesses, your Mormons, uh, Muslims who are serving Islam, Hindu, Buddhists. They have a different idea of who Jesus is. And therefore, because of that, they're not Christian, even if they were to call themselves a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to understand who Jesus is. But This is not what we're dealing with here with King Saul and the future King David. They're serving, supposedly, the same God. The same God had them both anointed as king. So the understanding of who God is is a little bit different. So the second way that people fail to be a Christian, or those who claim to be followers of Christ and of God, and the second way they fail is this. The Christ that they serve has no deeds for them to be conformed to. They simply are accepted as they are. They will often profess views and live lives in direct opposition with the revealed word of God and the obedience that comes from the one who loves Jesus. These are the false teachers and the false prophets that Jesus and the other New Testament authors warn us about. If we look in Matthew chapter 7, So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks a great deal about this. And starting in verse 13, there's a whole section of it where he talks about this idea of false teachers and false prophets. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. You know, what we see in this passage of scripture right here is that Jesus tells us that this second type of person is a person who might profess true belief in God, but then doesn't do any of the things that Jesus asks him to do. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He who does not love me does not obey my commands. There is a correlation toward our actions and what it is that we believe. But it's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not as a prerequisite of getting into heaven by having good works, but rather because of what Jesus did and has bought our way into heaven through his sacrifice, we wish to do good works for the one who bought us redemption. It's a big difference between the two. But the works follow that. And the works follow by being obedient to the command of God. The same thing that Saul was told all the while back when he disobeyed. So like obedience is better than sacrifice. And so now we have two kings. The, the king that is and the king that will be. And all we have to do is look at their actions. From our vantage point in scripture, we get the high ground. We've already seen the story unfold. We already know that while Saul was a man after the people's own heart, that David was a man after God's own heart. We already know that. But in working things out in real time, it's very confusing when you hear Saul who says, God has provided a way for me to capture David. And it's the same God that anointed both him and David. Now whether Saul knows that or not, whether Saul is aware that David is the future king, or maybe he's made that uh, understanding, or maybe he's just fraught with madness. We don't know. But it's interesting, because the same way to find out who's really, being, uh, who's really got a relationship with God in the Old Testament is the same thing that what Jesus said in the New Testament. We look at their works. And so what have we seen from Saul? So Saul has, has come forward and he has murdered all of the priests who are supposed to keep people looking toward God and have people understand what it is to follow God. 
He has attacked people from within his own country because he's trying to go after David. What's David's reaction to all of this? Well, a couple of chapters later, what we'll read next week in chapter 26, when God has given uh, David an opportunity where he could possibly kill King Saul for a second time. We read the first one this week in chapter 24. Abishai says that he's ready to kill him. And in verse 9 of chapter 26, we can hear David's heart, what he really thinks about this whole situation, and how he thinks about Saul, and what he thinks about that. So, But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him down. Either his time will come, or he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. How interesting. When given the opportunity to slay who would be his enemy, David recognizes that Saul, just like himself, is the Lord's anointed. He was anointed by God. It is God's decision to take him out of office. And he can do so by the Lord himself dealing with him, or him just dying, or him going off to battle and losing his life. But David said, you cannot raise your hand up against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. This is a man after God's own heart. Not trying to defend a kingdom he hasn't even come into being yet, but rather you see his heart for the things of God. And we'll learn later, as we already know, that David's not anywhere close to being a perfect person. But here we see his heart. This is what makes him a man after God's own heart. Where Saul is worried about his own kingdom and has been feverishly trying to defend his own kingdom. That's not even his to give or to receive. But it all comes from God. But he's feverishly trying to say, I want my kingdom to stand. Therefore, I will destroy anybody, even God's hand-picked successor in order to try and keep my kingdom. Which has led to a slaughter of a whole bunch of priests. And lets you know very easily, just by reading the actions of the people there, which one is really serving God, and which one isn't. You know what's so funny is, I'm on a um, website with a lot of youth pastors, somewhere between fourteen and 16,000 youth pastors. And I... I there are a lot of people who post a lot of things on this website, and I cannot believe how many youth pastors, and I use that in quotations, just simply don't teach from the Word of God. Simply try to make excuses for living the way the world lives as in opposition to what the Word of God says. There's one particular person I'm thinking of in general who said they have taken 10 years to study, to finally come to the conclusion that the whole LGBTQ movement is right and holy in the sight of God. They spent 10 years trying to figure out how the straightforward reading of Scripture, which talks about these things as being sinful and outside of the will of God, making it right. It's, it's like this whole Saul situation, right? They want to keep their kingdom because, guess what? Going with what the culture says and going against that culture is really hard. So I'm going to take 10 years to really figure out what the Word of God says so that I can agree with this culture. 
See, the problem isn't whether we're talking about this youth pastor in this situation or other things that are mentioned on this website. It's just amazing to me how many of them are going against a straightforward reading, not just of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament and what it says and the commands of Jesus concerning all that so that they can continue to do what the culture is already doing. And Jesus said, guess what? You're going to have false prophets. You're going to have false teachers from among you talking about the church, talking about the believers, those who profess to be believers. There are going to be some who are raised up among us whose, guess what? Their works are not in line with the truth. Yet they will profess the same things that we believe. Their doctrinal statements will look very similar. They may not deny the triune nature of God or that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You might look at all of that on their website, but then when you get to the actual teachings of Jesus, you find that they find ways to circumvent the straightforward reading of Scripture to say the exact opposite of what it says. And yet they will say that they're a Christian in the same way that you and I are. You see, the understanding is this. I think sometimes you and I romanticize the scriptures. Because we see Saul as, as a king of the people. We see David as a man after God's own heart. And we see the story and we read it and we romanticize it thinking it's not as hard as it really is. Please understand this. David is on the run. From Saul who wants to kill him. Other people have lost their lives. Standing for, for God during this time and doing the right thing is not an easy thing. When he's standing before that which is his enemy, even though he's the anointed of God, and saying the right thing and saying, look, we're not going to kill him. That's God's job. We're going to just go away and hopefully he'll leave us alone. That's not an easy thing. See, it might be a simple thing to know what the Word of God is, but it's not an easy thing to work it out. And i got to be very honest with you. I, there's a little bit of Saul in me, because Saul is more concerned about his kingdom, his priorities, what he wants to do. How many of you have ever done something that you knew God didn't want you to do it, you knew it was the wrong thing to do. You did it anyway because you just wanted to do it, because that's just what you wanted to do. I know I have. I know I have. That's why I say there's a little bit of Saul in me, because Saul is protecting his own kingdom. And that's what you and I do when we do what we want to do, apart from what God has asked us to do, to die to ourselves, to live for Christ, to be a man after God's own heart, and to have His priorities in our life. And so the truth of the matter is, I, I sympathize, I understand what, what it is to be like Saul and want to protect my kingdom. But it's not my kingdom. I've given it away. I'm, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I said he's the one who's supposed to lead me. Therefore, I'm supposed to be in conformity of Christ. Therefore, when I'm doing something that God doesn't want me to do, my only and proper response is that of repentance. That's to be a man after God's own heart. This is what we see in David, who is doing these things, though it's not easy. You know, it's a whole lot easier. And it's going to be, uh, it's a whole lot easier to give in to what the culture is doing and still be considered righteous, at least in the culture's eyes, right? 
We're living in a time where it's harder and harder to bear the name of Christ as it is written in the scriptures through the commands of Christ as we see it. It's harder and harder to do that. Not because it's not simple to see what we're supposed to do. It's just not easy. And that we know that if we're really going to follow Jesus Christ, then it's not going to be just an easy saying, I've got heaven locked up because of what Jesus has done for me. But rather, I've got to live that here on earth and that's going to be hard. Because the world around me is becoming more and more hostile to what it is for us to believe as Christians. We believe certain things that the world around us doesn't. Some of us might have even bought into those things because you know why? We're kind of protecting our world, our way of life, the things that we want to do. We're kind of like Saul saying, I want this. And you know what? The simple truth is you and I are supposed to repent of those things so that we can follow God. It's not going to be easy, but it's a simple solution because it's right there in the Word. And we know what it says. And see, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that I'd be a little bit more like David. But if I'm going to be like David, a man after God's own heart, then I have to have my eyes opened to the reality that standing for God and standing for Christ in a fallen world that believes a lot of things that are opposite to what we're commanded in Scripture to be and to do as believers in Christ is going to put me at odds with the world around me when I stand for Jesus. It may be simple to know what that answer is, but it's hard to work it out. Because you know what? There's a part of me that wants to keep my kingdom. My kingdom. But in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ, I I need to give my kingdom away so I gain His. This is not the end. We are not living for a life here on earth forever in its tainted form. We have a place that is being prepared for us by Jesus himself. And if he prepares that place, he's going to come back so that we'll be with him forever. Our hope is not here in this fallen world. Our hope is that this fallen world has its answer and its cure in Jesus Christ. And you and I need to be followers of Christ, even when the world is not following Christ. No matter what it costs us, because he is better. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart, no matter what it costs us, because what we gain in return is better. You see, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is very simple. That my heart would be more like that of King David, a man after God's own heart, and I fall short of it so many times, and a lot less like King Saul, who's so worried about losing his kingdom, his way of life, his understanding, his whole world. I think all of us understand that struggle that's within us. But recognizing that if we grab on to a kingdom that's our own, we'll oftentimes do the exact opposite of what God is calling us to do as believers in Jesus. And the last thing I want me to hear or any of you guys to hear is at the end of time, is Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. He turns around and says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Not everybody's going to make it to heaven who says that Jesus is Lord, but only those who do the will of the Father. And my prayer for you and for me, especially in this time where the world around us is in such uncertainty, 
is that you and I will shine as beacons of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ by choosing Him and continuing to choose Him. Not because that answer is not simple. Because it's a simple answer. But it's hard for us to work out, to make that sacrifice, to realize that Christ is better and obedience is better than sacrifice. And so we want to be obedient to God and obedient to Christ because of our love for Him. That's my prayer for every one of you. That's my prayer for me. Let's be more like King David, a man after God's own heart, and stop protecting a kingdom that was never ours to gain or give away. Jesus did all that on the cross. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the opportunity for us to gather in this place. And Lord, would you help us to stop protecting our kingdom like King Saul, which leads to so many things against what your word says, what we ought to be doing, because we're protecting what we want and not concerned for the things of God. Lord, help us to be more like King David. Help us to be men and women after your own heart. Help us, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, to continue to simply choose Christ and what you say, the straightforward reading of your word, not trying to get out of it, trying to live it out, and give us the strength and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do so, because we can't do it in ourselves. We thank you, O Lord. We pray to your Heavenly Father, you'll help us be a beacon of light in this time of darkness, Lord, and point to Christ as our only answer for all of these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.